Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Over the last uh, month and a half, I've probably read through this chapter uh, 20, 30 times and listening to it on audio and just marinating in the goodness of this chapter. And I want to speak to you from this chapter uh, today. And if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Kindling Afresh, the Gift of God. Can everyone read that on the screen? Is that, is that large enough? We can go bigger. If All right. From 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we'll see how far we get this morning. This past week, as most of you know, uh, marked the 75th anniversary of the invasion of the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy, and I was reminded afresh of how tenuous everything seemed at that particular uh, point. With the benefit of hindsight, uh, we can sometimes look back and think that it was always a given that the war would end the way that it ended with a victory for the Allied forces, but the truth is that there were several points when the outcome of the war was not certain at all, and this was one of them. I was reminded this week of how uh, Winston Churchill uh, spoke to the British people four years prior to the landing at Normandy as Hitler was turning his attention to England. Hitler had just conquered France, and everyone knew that he was setting his sights on England and some in Britain had called for appeasement, but Churchill and others rejected that option. They resolved to fight because there was simply too much at stake to not fight. And on June the 18th, 1940, Churchill stood before the House of Commons and he spoke these words. Listen to what he said. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. He went on to say, let us brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Wonderful words there. In his speech on that day, Churchill was not simply trying to brace the British people for war. Notice his words. He said to them, let us brace ourselves. He was trying to get them to rise to the task of bracing themselves. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get Timothy to do in 2 Timothy and what I want to encourage all of you to do today. 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter that he will write before his execution he writes from prison knowing that within a matter of months, 
he is going to be executed, and he's very concerned. You can feel it in this letter, very concerned about Timothy, who is leading the church at Ephesus. Paul is worried, it seems, that Timothy's sense of fight might be diminishing. Paul anticipates that Timothy is discouraged right now, given the fact that Timothy has good reason to be discouraged. Timothy's beloved spiritual father, Paul, is in prison and about to be executed. Timothy knows that many in Asia have abandoned the apostle Paul in his imprisonment. We know from chapter 3 that Timothy found himself living in very difficult, perilous days of great depravity that had to have been as overwhelming to Timothy as it is sometimes for us today. We know from chapter 4 that Timothy was observing many who could not endure sound teaching that he was trying to deliver But instead, they were running off to get their ears tickled by others who seemed to have more interesting and exciting things to say. Some weren't running off at all, but were sticking around to vigorously oppose Timothy and his ministry at every turn. So this is a vulnerable and pivotal time for Timothy. The darkness around him seemed, no doubt, really dark The forces of evil seemed really powerful. Persecution under Nero is reaching fever pitch. And Nero's biggest prize sits in prison with a sword hovering above his head. In his moments of doubt, Timothy may have wondered if this grand experiment called Christianity was going to be squashed under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. At the very least, Timothy probably felt like he was merely an ant compared to the immensity of the evil that was all around him. And he probably wondered if he really had what it took to do the job of leading the church in Ephesus. It is exactly at this point that Paul writes his second epistle to Timothy His first letter to Timothy focused on issues related to the orderly function of the local church. But in 2 Timothy, Paul's focus is almost entirely on tending to Timothy himself. Paul gives many instructions to Timothy throughout 2 Timothy. Yet the very first instruction that he gives to Timothy is found in chapter 1 verse 6, where he says to Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's the first instruction that we find in the entire book and in this chapter. Martin Luther suggested that this instruction from Paul indicates Paul's governing purpose in the entirety of chapter 1, and it's the instruction that I want us to focus on this morning. The Greek word that is translated gift is charisma, a word that we even use in our language today, a charisma that seemed to have come into Timothy through the laying on of Paul's hands. This charisma was partly a giftedness that 
no doubt was given to Timothy at his conversion, but it seems to have involved a later moment in which an extra gifting was given to Timothy in order to empower him to do the gospel ministry that he is presently engaging in as he oversees the Ephesian congregation. And in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy to do something specific with this gift, this charisma. And he actually uses quite brazen language to tell Timothy what he wants him to do with his gift. Keep in mind, guys, that three years prior to this moment, a fire raged through Rome, destroying 70% of the city. And Nero, the emperor, blamed Christians for the fire and used the opportunity to stoke hatred against Christians and to persecute the Christians. This is part of why Paul is sitting in prison in Rome right now as he writes this letter. Because Christians had been blamed for setting Rome ablaze. And what is Paul's first instruction in his letter to Timothy that Paul writes from a prison in Rome? Literally, his instruction is to kindle afresh or to fan the flame of the gift of God that was in him. The verb that Paul is using here means to take smoldering embers and to fan them into an active flame. This is not a politically correct way for a Christian in a Roman prison to be talking right now. But Paul speaks this way and instructs Timothy to burn, to kindle afresh, to fan the flame of the gift of God within him. Obviously, God is the one who gave Timothy the gifting. It was truly in Timothy. God is the one who keeps the gifting in Timothy from day to day. Yet evidently, Timothy has a role to play in not only using that gifting, but fanning the flames of that gifting that God had put within him and telling Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God that was in him, Paul is depicting Timothy's gift as a fire that burned within him, a fire that God obviously wants to be burning brightly so that it can provide light and warmth to others and also serve as a fire that can do great damage against the kingdom of Satan. And just as one would provide fuel to a fire or extra kindling for that fire to burn. And just as one would provide some movement of air to provide fresh oxygen and direct the fire into the kindling so that the flame could burn more brightly and spread, even so Timothy is to do the same for the gift that is in him. As R. Kent Hughes, the commentator, says in his commentary on this verse, the giftedness was there, but there was a need for more fire. Timothy was to fan his gift to full flame. And that's what Paul calls upon Timothy to do here in verse 6. Implied 
and Paul's language is the truth that the gifting that God had given to Timothy could do one of two things. A, it could languish within him and burn at a level two or even lower. Or B, it could explode with vitality and burn at a level 10, the maximum at which God had designed for it to operate. And the same is true for you and for me. What I know about every member of Cornerstone is that each of you are gifted by God. You have a gift that God has given to you to help you to make a contribution to the life of this local church and to the cause of Christ even around the world. In 1 Peter 4.10, we're told that each one of us has received a gift, a charisma. In Romans 12.6, Paul tells us that we have charisma that differ according to the grace that is given to us. So the charisma that God gives to us is different with each one of us, but we each have been given a special endowment from God that leaves us with a special ability to to serve others with the love of Christ and to do damage to Satan's kingdom. That said, we can infer from Paul's language to Timothy that each of our giftings can burn at a level one or a level 10 or anywhere in between. Think about the difference that can make in the ministry of a church like Cornerstone when those differences are multiplied by 500 of us. It's huge. Here's what I've been thinking about in recent days. Imagine that we take the charisma that God has given to each one of us and put it all together into one fiery lump. Viewing that charisma as a fire, how much of that charisma, how much is that charisma burning right now in comparison to what it could be? in comparison to its God-given capacity? Is it burning at 100% right now? Or is it burning at 10% or 20%? Is there kindling that we need to be doing to the charisma that God has placed in us and in our midst? And if so, how do we actually kindle afresh the gift of God that is in us? That's the question I want us to ask and to answer. Paul wants Timothy's gifting within him to be kindled, to be fanned, so that it grows brighter. And he gives Timothy responsibility for fanning the flame of that gifting that is in him, just as each of us evidently has the same responsibility. This is something that Paul could not do for Timothy Timothy must make the choice to kindle afresh the gift of God that was within him and to put that gift into operation. Nonetheless, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul provides Timothy with a ton of kindling and spiritual oxygen that Timothy can make use of as he seeks to obey 
Paul's instruction to kindle afresh the gift of God that was in him. And this morning, I'd like for us to just observe five things that Paul seems to want Timothy to do. And we will look at them as five things that we should do to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in us. I'd love for this to be a blazing hot summer. Right? A summer of kindling where we, where it's not necessarily hot outside, that's not what I wish for, but it's hot inside. And the fire of our gifting in our midst is burning brightly because we are doing what Paul is instructing here and kindling afresh the gift of God within us. Five things that we can do in order to do that. Number one, Remember those who are praying for us and who rejoice in us. Remember those who are praying for us and who rejoice in us. In verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, For this reason, you might want to mark those words. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. And when Paul says, For this reason, he's pointing back to what he has been saying in verses 1 through 6. So observe what Paul says in verses 1 through 4. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. These are kindling words here. There's a lot of kindling that Paul is providing Timothy right here, just in these verses. You think it encouraged Timothy to hear this great apostle call him a son a beloved son, a son who is loved by him, to hear the apostle wishing him every grace and mercy and peace from God, to hear that Paul was thanking God for him night and day and praying for him, to hear that Paul longed to see him, to be told by Paul that he remembers his tears at their last parting which very well may be referring to the tearful goodbye as the apostle was carried off to Rome. We don't know. Do you think it was encouraging for Timothy to be told that he brings fullness of joy to the heart of the great apostle Paul and that Paul is longing to see him again because of the personal joy that he receives from Timothy? When he and Timothy are together, you think those reminders would have encouraged Timothy and fan the flames of the gifting of God within him? Absolutely. These words from Paul would have encouraged Timothy as he would have pondered them. And we can easily imagine why it's easy to get caught up in the discouragements and the demands and the defeats of ministry so much so that we forget about those who love us and who pray for us and who are thanking God for us night and day. 
We get so focused on the problem situations that we are confronted with and the people who maybe aren't happy with us so much so that we forget about those whom we actually bring joy to. We get tunnel vision. And I'm sure Timothy was getting that to some degree and breaking through that is Paul saying, I love you, Timothy, and I am praising God for you and you bring me fullness of joy and I can't wait to see your face. So if you need to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you, think about the people that are praying for you and thanking God for you. Think about the people who receive joy from you. And while you're at it, be the person who is praying for and thanking God for others and who tells them so. When you receive joy from the ministry of a brother or a sister, tell them so. They need to hear such things from you more than you know. And you give them a ton of oxygen and kindling to help them keep their gifting burning at full flame. There's a second thing we would want to do in order to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in us. Number two, ponder the fact that the faith that is in us first dwelt in others. We should think about the fact that the faith that is right now in us first dwelt in others. Observe what Paul says in verse 5 about Timothy's faith. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Why would Paul say this to Timothy? He's trying to get Timothy right now to think beyond himself And think about those who have taught him and invested in him the truth of God and imparted their faith to him. And we should do the same when we're discouraged or we find ourselves defeated or intimidated by circumstances or in the throes of ministry. We should think about the fact that the faith that is right now in us dwelt first in others who came before us. Perhaps it was our parents and grandparents and even further back. Perhaps it was the coworker or the neighbor or the friend who shared the gospel with us when we first believed. The truth is that the faith that is in you right now, if you're a believer in Jesus, is the same faith that was in the heart of Abraham and a lineage of others who followed him through thousands of years. When we're discouraged, when we're intimidated by battles in the present era that we find ourselves in, it's good for us to remember that our years of ministry for Christ on this earth is simply our lap in the relay race. We carry in our hearts a baton of faith, that was once carried in the heart of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and the apostles 
all the way down through thousands of years to the very people who shared the gospel with us so that we might hear it and believe. And one day, the faith that is in us will be in others that we share Christ with who will pass it on to even more others as the relay race continues. If you want to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you, think of those who have gone before you and whose spiritual DNA is actually in you. Think of those who have poured into you and taught you the things of God from your past and in the present. Doing this will inevitably make you think of those who will come after you and cause you to want to live and minister in a way that those who come after you will be inspired by their remembrance of you. Notice that Paul begins verse 6 by, by saying, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, he's saying, It is because I'm praying for you and thanking God for you, rejoicing over you, longing to see you, It's because I'm thinking of the faith that was in your grandmother and in your mother. It's for this reason that I am now reminding you to stir up, to fan the flame and kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you, Timothy. There's a third thing we'll want to do in order to fan the flames of God's gifting in us so that it burns at full flame. Number three, realize the nature of the spirit that God has given to us. Realize the nature of the spirit that God has given to us. In verse six, Paul says, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Then notice how immediately Paul follows up this call with something he wants Timothy to think about. Look at verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Notice the words there, kindle afresh the gift of God for God. Paul wants Timothy to think about God, and he wants Timothy to think about the spirit that God has given to him and placed inside of him. Many English translations translate the word spirit with a small s, but many commentators suggest that we should translate it with a capital S, speaking of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to us. And that would be my suggestion as well. Speaking about the spirit, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, This is kind of like a parent who might be speaking to their child and say, you know, I didn't pay good money to get you through school so that you could sit around and do nothing. You didn't get a degree in laziness. That's kind of Paul's vibe here. Only what he's attacking is timidity. He's saying to Timothy, God didn't give you his spirit so that you could shrink back And be a coward. So if you're feeling timid and cowardly 
in the heat of spiritual battle, you can know that such cowardice does not come from the Holy Spirit because God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice. Instead, Paul says, God, look at what God has given to us. God has given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. You say, man, I don't have power. I don't have love. I don't have discipline. Yes, you do if you have the spirit. God has given us a spirit who demonstrates his power by enabling us to do humanly impossible things that God has called us to do. God has given us the spirit so that we might experience God's love flowing into us and through us back to God and to others. And this love is so strong that it pushes aside our normal fears. God has also given to us a spirit who gives us discipline, which speaks of a level-headedness that enables us to persevere in life and in ministry without falling apart and giving up. Timothy may have been a naturally shy and timid type of person, but Paul would say, so what? Within him is a spirit who provides him with all of the power and love and discipline that he needs to do what God has gifted him to do. So what if you're naturally a weak person? Doesn't matter. The spirit within you is strong. That's what matters. God has given to all of us the spirit so that we can be courageous instead of cowardly, powerful rather than wimpy, loving rather than selfish, level-headed in the heat of ministry, forward-moving rather than retreating, and bold in Christ rather than ashamed of Christ. In other words, God gave us a spirit so that we could be the opposite of what we would be if left to our natural selves. Do you believe that? And what I love here is that Paul could have told Timothy, Timothy, be powerful, be loving, be disciplined. He could have done that. That would have been great. But instead, he reminds Timothy that God has given to him a spirit who provides that power and that love and that discipline. When the spirit is allowed to operate freely in one's life. And Paul says to Timothy, kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you. And here's some kindling and oxygen that God has given to you to do this with the spirit who is not a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, remind yourself of this and allow the spirit to flow like a rushing wind through your life every day to fan the flame of your gifting and to help you to be what God wants you to be and needs you to be right now. There's a fourth thing that we'll want to do in order to rekindle or kindle afresh the gift of God that is in us. Number four, let's word it this way. Boldly embrace gospel ministry, even if it means suffering according to God's power. And I'm basically just lifting Paul's language here, even though this is not normally the way that we might speak. 
Because God has given us such a spirit of power and love and discipline, Paul speaks in verse 8 and says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What is the testimony of our Lord? As D. Edmund Hebert says, it's the message of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. He's saying, and then Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul is saying, join with me in engaging in gospel ministry faithfully and facing whatever suffering is going to come with you doing that. And notice that final phrase there, according to the power of God. Paul is wanting Timothy to know that when moments of suffering for the gospel come, they don't come because of some glitch or breakdown in the working of God's power. We don't suffer because somehow our situation slipped through the cracks of God's attention or, or it was some weak spot in God's otherwise great power. No, our moments of suffering for the gospel, guys, are sovereignly orchestrated, highly concentrated moments when the power of God can be deeply experienced and displayed through us. We all want to be used of God to impact others with the power of the gospel, right? Raise your hand if you want that. Okay. But what if God chose to have us suffer in order to provide others with an undeniable demonstration of his power? Would you be okay with that? What if God wanted to show someone how precious the gospel is by letting them see the way you willingly suffer for the gospel? Would you be up for that? Many of you know the story of Richard Wormbrand. He and his wife, Sabina, suffered horribly in communist Romania. They tell their story and the story of others like them in the book, Tortured for Christ. In the book, he tells the story of how they raised their son, Mihai, to believe in Jesus. But they share how the terrible sufferings that Mihai witnessed at an early age as he watched Christians, including his parents, suffer greatly for the cause of Christ, that all of that caused him to wonder if Christianity is really the religion for me. One day at the age of 11, Mihai was allowed permission to go to the prison to see his mom who had been in prison for two years suffering for Christ. And Richard Wormbrand tells a story of what happened on this day that Mihai visited his mom. And he writes these words. He, Mihai, went to the communist prison and saw his mother behind iron bars. She was dirty, thin, with calloused hands, wearing the shabby uniform of a prisoner. 
he scarcely recognized her. Her first words were, Mihai, believe in Jesus. The guards, in a savage rage, pulled her away from Mihai and took her out. Mihai wept, seeing his mother dragged away. And this minute was the moment of his conversion. He knew that if Christ can be loved under such circumstances, he surely is the true Savior. He said afterwards, if Christianity had no other arguments in its favor than the fact that my mother believes in it, that this is enough for me. That was the day, Richard Wormbrand says, that he fully accepted Christ. How many of us would have orchestrated an event like that to influence someone for Christ? But guys, this is why Paul talks to Timothy the way that he talks in verse 8. Suffering according to the power of God. Suffering is not something that happens to you even though God is powerful. Suffering is something that God allows into your life because he's powerful and wants to display his power in your life and through you. And so all of us have a choice. We can wimp out and distance ourselves from the gospel and avoid suffering for the gospel and thereby cheat ourselves out of the experience of God's power. Or we can embrace the gospel and the ministry of the gospel and whatever suffering is going to go along with that knowing that any suffering that we endure is always according to the power of God. There's a fifth and final thing that we will want to do if we want to kindle afresh the gift of God that is within us. Number five, savor the gospel of our God and Christ Jesus. It's at this point that Paul provides a shot of pure oxygen for Timothy to use in fanning the flames of the gift of God within him. This shot of oxygen is pure gospel truth expressed in verses 9 and 10. Speaking of God, Paul says, look at verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is speaking to Timothy, who is a Christian pastor of pastors. And what does Paul do? He evangelizes Timothy with gospel truth. He has called Timothy to fan the flames of the gift of God within him, and what does Paul do immediately after giving that instruction? He puts gospel truth in front of Timothy for him to look at and ponder. This makes sense. If it's true, what Paul says in Romans 1.18, that the gospel is the dunamis, the power of God, then obviously the best thing that Paul can give to Timothy right now is pure gospel to help him to kindle afresh the flame of God's gifting within him. Observe the gospel truths that are enumerated in these 
two verses. We'll just run through these very quickly. Number one, God saved us, meaning he saved us from our sins. Number two, God effectually called us with a calling that is holy and that makes us wholly set apart to God and fully devoted to him. Number three, God did not save us according to our works. Number four, he saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which he decided to give to us in eternity past. Number five, this purpose and grace from God has become manifest through the first appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, when he came to earth and lived among us and died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And number six, he, Christ, abolished death. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the worst that death could throw at him. And three days later, Jesus rose again and thereby nullified death's tyranny over our lives. Truth number seven that Paul states in verse 10 is that in defeating death, Jesus has brought life and immortality to light. The fact that Paul puts those two words together, life and immortality, is perhaps more significant than we might think at first. When you think about it, you realize that right now at the present time, life and mortality coexist. And mortality always wins in the end, right? All of us are physically alive. Most of you look like you're physically alive. While at the same time, death works in all of us. We have physical life, but our bodies are breaking down. And we simply have to accept the fact of our diminishing life, diminishing Vitality with each passing day, with each passing year, receding hairlines, wrinkled skin, creaky joints, diminishing vision, and eventual death are simply right now considered what? A part of life, right? But here Paul tells us that Christ has defeated death and set in motion a chain of events that will culminate in an existence that will not be described as life and mortality, but life and immortality, a life that is completely absent of any mortality, any dying, any decay, any disease. Are you looking forward to that? It's a life that is so overwhelming that it completely swallows up mortality, swallows up death so that death doesn't even exist or work on any level anymore. This is the life that Christ has brought to light through the gospel, Paul says. In other words, through the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and now sits enthroned at the right hand of God, giving life to all who believe in him through this message. Christ makes known the coming reality 
that can only be described as life and immortality. If you have never believed in Jesus, believe in him today. Call upon his name. He's, he's a powerful savior and he's good. Call upon his name today and enter into the goodness and the power of these things that Paul is describing here in these verses. If you're a Christian and you want to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you, spend some time meditating on these gospel truths. Preach these gospel truths to yourself and they will surely serve as pure oxygen to fan the flame of the gift of God that is in you. In fact, I think we can say that from what Paul says here and does in this chapter, in these verses, we can learn that the fire of your spiritual gifting feeds on the oxygen of gospel truth. And you will only know, you will only know the full capacity of your gifting when you are feeding it a steady supply of gospel truth and believing it. This is precisely why Paul can say what he says to Timothy in the following verses. Having just spoken of the gospel, Paul says in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul is sitting in prison awaiting the sword, which will remove his head from his body. And the gift of God is burning hotter within him than it ever has before. Why? Because he believed the gospel. Here he is rehearsing gospel truth, even as he writes a letter to Timothy. He knew the one that he believed in. He was convinced that Jesus was able to guard what he had entrusted to him all the way until the day when life and immortality are the new normal. And so he pleads with Timothy in verses 13 and 14, saying, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, including what you've just heard from me right now, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And the sound, health-giving words that Paul is speaking of here and the treasure is nothing other than the treasure of the good news of salvation revealed in the Scripture. Timothy must hold on to this gospel and guard the gospel, not just in his preaching, but in his heart from day to day, never allowing it to slip from his grasp or from the center of his consciousness. He must make the scripture the preoccupation of his heart and make the gospel the central meditation of his heart every day throughout the day. And he must guard God's word and the gospel in his ministry to others, making sure that it always has the central place that it ought to have. And we need to do the same today. Timothy must not be distracted by those who have abandoned the faith, but should take inspiration from those that have remained faithful. 
He should take inspiration from the words that Paul speaks to him here. Listen to how Paul closes this chapter. I just want to point out one word from this. He says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Notice in verse 16 how Paul says that Onesiphorus often refreshed him. The word refreshed actually has the Greek word for soul inside of it. Literally, Paul is saying he resold me. He enlivened me afresh would be a good translation. One commentator says that this particular word means to provide a cool, refreshing breeze for a man about to faint. And those are really good words right now, this point of the summer. The Amplified Bible translates Paul as saying that Onesiphorus was reviving and bracing me like fresh air. So the cool thing is in this chapter, we go all the way from fanning a hot flame to a cool blast of fresh air that often revived the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul is very humbly making an admission to Timothy, basically saying to Timothy, you know what, Timothy, there have been many moments when I have felt faint myself, yet I was refreshed and invigorated by the faithful ministry of a dear brother who sought me out and who ministered to me. And now I'm just seeking to pay that forward and minister encouragement to you to kindle afresh the gift of God that is in you. I love Paul's example here. We should follow this example. He's been abandoned by many in Asia. He's been deserted by Demas, yet he lets himself be invigorated by the kindness of Onesiphorus. And we have to be the same way. If we want to kindle afresh the gift of God within us, we can't get hung up on the defeats and the desertions of ministry. We must cherish the victories and cherish, even in our moments of discouragement and faintness, every little act of love from another towards us and be refreshed thereby. We must let the example and ministry of others serve as a fresh infusion to our soul, even if we find ourselves in a dungeon right now. And we must be willing to be a source of refreshment and kindling to others as well. Perhaps you're here today and you wish for opportunities for ministry that they were greater than they are right now. Maybe you wish that you were younger and you had more years of ministry ahead of you. Maybe you find yourself trapped in a place where you would rather not be right now. Wherever you find yourself, do the little that you can, even if it's only writing a letter that can encourage someone in their faith and ministry. It was just about all that the Apostle Paul was able to do right now in this autumn of A.D. 67. But he writes a letter to fan the flames of Timothy's spiritual gift, and here we are 2,000 years later reading this letter and being impacted by it. 
And we look back at Paul in this very moment sitting in a dungeon and we say, by the grace of God, this was one of his finest hours. And how many of such hours lie ahead for you? Let's pray together. Lord, it's been a wonderful ministry year. I'm so thankful for the the ministry of so many in this church body and the way that they live out the very ethic that we're talking about in these verses that we see exhibited by the example of Paul. The burden of our heart, Lord, is that you have gifted us and with that gifting comes heavy responsibility. And I fear that in our midst there are some whom you have gifted to burn at a certain capacity, and they're just burning at 10%. If at all, we can do better. You give us the gifts. By your grace, we use the gifts. But we learn here that we have a responsibility to fan the flame of that gifting, to kindle afresh that gifting, And Paul gives us a ton of kindling and oxygen in this chapter alone to do that with, not to speak of everywhere else in Scripture that we find. Plenty of kindling. So may we spend these days, Lord, kindling afresh the gift of God within us that from this church there will be a light and a a warmth that will bring light and warmth to others And may the fire that burns within us do damage to Satan's kingdom for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give up our offerings to you. Receive what we give in this offering and use everything that is given for the glory of Jesus and the spread of this amazing gospel that we believe, by which we are saved, and that we preach to others. We give ourselves to you also, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.